Welcome to Stories from Every Day. I'm Liam Cosma, and this is Episode 7, Prisoner of War. Thanks for listening. I think survival is foremost in your mind once you lose it, lose freedom. You want to live. Germans controlled, you know, our destiny. We were at the mercy of their generosity, you might say. And it was a case of our country right or wrong. It was wrong in a sense that my parents were incarcerated. Welcome again to Stories from Every Day. Today, I have a very special episode. I'm talking with Jimmy Kanaya, a retired colonel who served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Jimmy enlisted prior to World War II and eventually received his battlefield commission overseas in Europe. Eventually, he was captured by the Germans and spent time as a Nazi POW. Jimmy was a member of the 442nd, a combat unit comprised of Japanese service members and the most decorated unit of its size in the history of the United States Army at the time. While Jimmy Kanaya was fighting in Europe, his parents were living in a Japanese internment camp back in the United States. Jimmy is now in his 90s. He and his wife were gracious enough to host me for the conversation you're about to hear. For our conversation, we sat at Jimmy's kitchen table, leaning over in front of our microphones. The first part of our conversation spanned the better part of an hour. We cover numerous topics, including Jimmy's service in France, his capture, Korea, and a trip to visit his parents in camp while he was serving. Eventually, his wife Lynn sat down with us and we talked for a while longer. I consider myself incredibly lucky to have met Jimmy and Lynn. I'll be forever grateful for the experience and for Jimmy's service in our country's time of need. I hope you enjoy it. I've always admired the military because I lived in uh, Clackamas, Oregon. And uh, when I was growing up, the uh, National Guards were called in during the riots of the mid-30s. And they, they, and they assembled at uh, the units at, at the Camp uh, Whittacomb in Clackamas, Oregon, and I'd go there every evening and watch their retreat parade. They'd have a, there'd be a band and a formation and inspections and, and they, they, they would pass in review. And I always respected that. And I've always wanted the military. So as soon as I was eligible, I, I volunteered for the regular army. And I, that was my career. I, I didn't want, uh, anything to interfere with that. So I went up from $21 a month to, uh, without even going through any kind of a school or academy where I made regular army and I stayed in for 34 years. Of course, I didn't have any education. I got my, all my education in the military. I, I finished high school in the army and uh, and you had to have a degree to make to get into the regular army. So uh, I got my degree, and um, then I went up from there. Got my master's degree, and worked on up from there. Uh, you had to have a master's degree to be at least to be a colonel. So I knew that was the goal. In other words, uh, if I didn't get my master's degree, I, I'd probably still be a private. <laughs> <laughs> So, so if I understand right, you joined to become, you wanted to be a pilot, and that's how you... Uh, yeah, I joined the Army Air Corps, and I was taking training at Hamilton Field, and they, basic training, and I thought I was going to be in the Army Air Corps and be a pilot, learn to be at least a mechanic, you know, air, air mechanic. That seemed to be the uh, going... Concern back in the 30s, you know, aviation was uh, just fledging propeller planes, and uh, I thought I was going to be an air mechanic because I had some mechanical training and and uh, at Benson uh, Benson Tech in Portland, 
a trade school for high school kids. But uh, they pulled about six or seven of us and, and formed the formed the cadre for General Hospital. <laughs> and there was the medic. All of a sudden, I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. But they put me in they put me in charge of a ward, uh, two wards, an uh, officer's ward, and I was. I learned to take care of patients. I guess I did all right. I stayed in and <laughs> got promoted, got my, got my field commission in combat, and uh, stayed in for a total of 34 years, four years enlisted and 30 years uh, commission service. Uh -huh. So I made the best of it. I... Uh, I had no idea I was going to be a medic, but once I got in, I, I just followed the nurses around and found out what they were doing and just worked my way up from there. That's, you yeah. see what everybody else is doing and just do that, and that's how you get ahead of huh? Yeah, they, yeah. They, uh, they always put me in charge of something, so I, took, I just took charge and did my job and kept on getting promoted. Yeah. I didn't have any basic knowledge of, of medicine, but I learned along the way and how to, what, I knew what the patients wanted, so I took care, tried to take care of them. And so they put me in the officer's ward, and uh, I had one enlisted man help me, and one janitor to keep the wards clean. And that was my job. Okay. And I guess I did a acceptable job because they kept me there until the war broke out, and then we were all transferred. All the Japanese Americans from the West Coast were transferred inland and formed uh, uh, all all Japanese American unit at Camp Shelby, and that's where I became a first sergeant. Then in combat, I got my commission and, and went on from there. You know, just sort of moved right, right into a, into a mold, and, um, and there's there's no turning back. You know, once you're you're on the move, you keep going. And in the army, why well, you can go as far as you can. Yeah, and that was the, the good. That was the part that uh, intrigued me to the to stay in as long as I can and go as far as you can. Destiny had already planned this for me, I guess. It just kind of worked itself in. And then after Shelby, you ended up in with the 442nd in Italy? Yes. Mm -hmm. well, after after uh, we formed our regiment, and uh, within one year, we were qualified to go overseas and combat and uh, that was uh, that was a goal to be we went through um, a lot of inspections you know and qualifications and, um, and you received your battlefield commission in Italy after yes I received a battlefield commission of course that's when I was captured uh, in Italy that uh, if I wasn't captured, I probably would have been killed somehow or wounded because uh, I was always up the front lines. And in fact, I stopped fighting for you know, for 10, 12 hours in some cases to pick up the casualties, you know, on both sides. So we made a peace, and uh, How, I you, never got criticized for it. You know? <laughs> so you negotiated a. Uh a peace with the yeah with the Germans for you know for no without so there'll be no fighting so the battlefield can be cleared. Wow. You just can't keep the wounded out there and or the bodies out there. We pick up the wounded first and we retrieve the bodies. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was part of the job. Yeah, and so the, the commanding officer the never criticized me for, you know, stopping the war and and um, we had to get the we had to get the bodies out and and the Germans uh, we negotiated with the Germans uh, 
they took some prisoners, you know, they took some prisoners who were wounded. And they told us about the prisoners, and so we brought the information back, and they were declared missing in action. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine. Do you, so you mentioned you were captured by the, by the Germans at one point. We were, uh, one of our battalions, the first, the 100th Battalion, got a mission of going over the mountains, separated from the rest of the regiment, to, uh, to liberate some, some U.S. prisoners, U.S. who were trapped in the village. So our one battalion went over the mountains to, uh, to capture, to recapture this town. And there were some prisoners there. Uh, and they were, we were coming back across the mountains. And I was, I went along as a litter bearer, a team of uh, men to bring back the wounded. And when our group was half, almost all the way back across to our lines again, we ran into a German patrol that stopped us and, uh, uh, took and released uh, the German prisoners, and and we in turn had to carry the the, the litters uh, back into German lines. They captured the whole group. Oh, about thirty-five, forty of us were captured. Wow. One small, one one large group, and. Uh, we couldn't uh, we couldn't get away, so we finally had to endure the uh, German. All the German prisoners that we had were were released, and uh, and they, they became our captors, you know, and we became their prisoners. <laughs> we trade places. <laughs> Switch. What? How, out of curiosity, how how did they treat? You, what was it like being in the German POW system? Well, the German, Germans were, um, were humane to the extent that uh, we were their prisoners and we were always hungry. We never got enough food. We were losing weight. Uh, I lost about 30 or 40 pounds during the six months I was there. Wow. I was down to about 129 pounds from 165 or 170. We were always hungry, and that's uh, that's a part of life. We we came used to it. Uh, Germans controlled, you know, our destiny. We were at the mercy of their generosity, you might say. And they were they were always hungry too. I could see that uh, we got the same food that they were getting, but it was all cooked in a great big vat. And uh, they ate first, but they got what was on the bottom, all the meat and all the thick vegetables on the bottom. They got what was on the bottom. And if we didn't, uh, if we weren't first in line. We took turns. There was about a thousand of us prisoners, and we took turns in line. And if you're if you're last in line, you got nothing but warm water, you know, warm colored water. But we but uh, next day we might be first in line. We get the, we get what was on the bottom after the German guards got theirs. Everybody was hurting, so we didn't complain. You know, you couldn't, you mm -hmm. couldn't say we were treated differently. Uh, we were, we ate the same food that they were eating. In a sense, <laughs> they got the, the best part of it. Were there many, any? Um, uh, did you try to escape at all? Were there many escape attempts? Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, at one point. The uh, German guards all took off because we were being we were being chased by the Russians. We were right behind us, so all the Germans took off. So we were free there for a while. We thought we were going to be liberated. 
But then the German drive stopped short of capturing us, and uh, the German guards came back and retook we took us and we kept on moving. We were treated about as good as could be expected under the circumstances. We weren't uh, treated very harshly. We, were, we, we saw very little beating, very little beating going on. But the Germans treated the Russian prisoners real harsh. We could really? see the Russian prisoners were also being moved. And we could see that some of them were were beaten to death on the side of the road. Russians who were, were treated, the Russian prisoners, Russians who took German prisoners were being brutal too, so the Rus Germans were, you know, were treating the Russian prisoners equally bad. But they knew that we were, uh, we abided by the Geneva Convention, so they treated us uh, the best they could under the circumstances. You know, we, we didn't get, we weren't coddled. You know, there were some beatings too because we asked for it, you know, so uh, there were some beatings going on. But uh, as a rule, they abided by the convention. There was no real harsh treatment. The only harsh treatment was lack of food. When you're always hungry, why, that's, enough uh, brutal treatment right there. Because when you're hungry, it's something that we never experienced you know, before. And it's very unusual for an American to be hungry, you know. At least, uh, especially in the Army, when we were always got enough to eat, we got one, one package, one box of sea rations every day. And it was enough to keep a hard-working man, you know, with a pick and axe all day long. So it was enough for us to, uh, to get by. But, uh, but the German ration of uh, bread and, uh, and soup uh, didn't go very far. You know. And did, um, I understand that at one point Patton's army uh, tried to rescue uh, your group? Yes, uh, Patton's son-in-law was in our camp, and uh, Patton knew that his son-in-law was in this group, so he sent a task force, and uh, this task force had to change course because the whole army shifted. The task force was in a different army instead of Patton's army, so they had to... They had to make a dash for our camp and um, liberate us and try to bring us back into the, the, the Third Army. And in the uh, in the attempt, why uh, they got you know we got stopped and and uh, the task force was annihilated. Those of us who were still alive and and. And able to move, walk back into camp, and we were within a walking distance. Wow! And uh, so we started all over again. Yeah. So you were almost free. You were on your way out with the well, tanks. We were on our way. We had about maybe fifteen, twenty more miles to go before we can get back into our lines with the German. Um, Brought more troops in and uh, tanks and captured, recaptured the whole gang. The whole, there were about, I'm estimating about 900 of us. And, and I think about a couple hundred of them made it back. The rest of us were recaptured and brought back into camp with the rest of the, the Serbians and other groups of nationalities that were there. And we had um, another session there, we try to uh, get back into the routine, you know, with our food. The food was very sporadic. It would, it, we didn't get anything to eat for a long time, and all of a sudden we get too much to eat, and one of those periods of time when uh, you didn't know if you were going to live or not. Um, but uh, most of us had, we knew that our side was winning, so at least they kept their hopes up, you know. 
We knew that if we ever escaped far enough, we'd get back and draw our own lines. Or if we lived long enough, we'd be, you know, we'd be free again. Because we knew our site was winning. We had uh, clandestine radio uh, receivers, and we knew what where the front lines were. And in fact, at times, you could hear the, you know, the bombardment that's going on. And uh, it kept our hopes up. And the Germans uh, knew they were losing. And sometimes you can tell their morale is low and they'd be very friendly to us. You know. That kept us going. And otherwise, uh, if we were losing, why well, I think our morale would be so low that we wouldn't get care whether we lived or not. You know. But uh, we, we kept on going. When were you finally... How How did you... Uh, how were you freed? How were you liberated? How uh, liberated? We were moving. Germans kept moving the prisoners away from the front lines. As the front lines came closer, they'd pack and move us. And we were moving from Nuremberg south towards Munich. And the word got out, got around that they were going to hold us as a hostage in, in the uh, in the Alps, and uh, that got me uh, concerned, and so the first chance I got, we es I escaped from the column. We were being strafed by our own planes. We, our own planes were diving down and strafing our column, thinking that we were German troops moving away from the front. So I, I hid out for a whole week. And I had uh, one Red Cross box with me that that I kept nibbling on uh, all during the week. I was hiding in, in the woods. At one time, the area where I was hiding was straight, was bombed by our own planes. And people were running around, so I said, I better get the hell out of there. <laughs> and so I was just hiding out right across from the camp where we left you know, a week before. So I got up and walked back into camp, tried to get back in, and they had to call the officer of the day to, German officers of the day to un open the gate so I can come back in. And there I, I was put into a group of Serbian officers who were running the dispensary. And there were some, a handful of American pilots who were shot down after the main group moved out. And they were there. So I was kind of an interpreter for the Serbians with the American <laughs> officers who were being treated by the Serbian medical people. And that's where I was until the day we were liberated. I recall tanks from one of our regiments came and and uh, broke through the gate with the tanks, and all the Serbian, all the Russian prisoners were escaping into Nuremberg. And our our army didn't want Russian prisoners going around, you know, around town, breaking into stores and breaking into weapons and bringing arms back. Every Russian prisoner that was escaped uh, coming back into camp. All the weapons were taken away from them. They were bringing back German pistols. I asked the MP, can I have one? He said, oh yeah, take one. So I brought back one German P-38 as a souvenir. <laughs> That's the only thing I brought back with me. It's the P-38. <laughs> yeah. I still got it back there. I'd love to see it after. Yeah, yeah. it was uh, the only souvenir of the war I brought back with me. Besides that canteen that uh, each prisoner carried with him, yeah, those uh, those are the days of touch and go. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen one day or the next, but we knew our side was winning. Going back, I think was it before you were captured? You spent time in France. Was it Italy and then France? We were in the um, Italian campaign, and they pulled our regiment out, and we went into southern France. 
And that's where I was captured in southern France. Uh, well, the tail end of the southern France campaign, we were up on, near uh, Strasbourg or that area. That's where uh, we hit the lines at, uh, near Colmar, the little town of uh, Briers and Bifontaine in the Vosges Mountains. I was evacuating casualties from one side of the mountains to the other when the Germans patrol stopped us and uh, took over, and that was it. Yeah. We couldn't, you know. In fact, we were just about back into our own lines when we were stopped and um, recaptured. All the prisoners we had, German prisoners, became, uh, we became their prisoners. Quirk of fate, you know, just one of those things that happened. Uh, we were outnumbered, you know, numbers count. Yeah, they had about 35, 40 Germans, and we had about five, four or five guards for the German prisoners, and that's all we had on our side. We 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 couldn't negotiate. Yeah. So, um, after being liberated. Um, did you spend much more time in Europe? Because I, I understand eventually you, you ended up in occupied Japan in the Pacific. Yeah, let's see. We, 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 were, we were liberated. Of course, the war was just about over. I came back and uh, where did I go? Oh, I went to civil affairs. We were going to occupy Japan. When the war was over, MacArthur didn't need occupation forces in Japan because he kept the Japanese government in place. That's strictly uh, not an accepted practice, you know, to keep like like uh, Nazi-fied Germany was completely occupied by U.S. troops, but MacArthur kept the Japanese government in place. Because they knew, MacArthur knew, or he knew about the Japanese culture, the emperor. He didn't take the emperor out and put him in jail. If he did that, he'd have to occupy Japan with troops and run the government. But he kept the emperor in place, so the Japanese government was loyal to the emperor. The emperor was still the emperor, and, but MacArthur, controlled the emperor. In other words, he, he superseded the emperor, but he kept the emperor in place. And the government was stabilized to the point where we didn't need occupation troops. So the troops that were there, uh, the 7th Division, uh, were just there as a show force. He, he'd hold a parade every evening, a retreat parade at the Imperial Palace grounds, and all the spectators would be there. They respected the emperor. They respected MacArthur for keeping the emperor in place. And so the country was stabilized without occupying it, in a sense. And when, the, of course, when the Korean War broke out, the first troops that troops that went to went to Korea in combat were the occupation troops in Japan that were not trained for combat. <laughs> they were trained for occupation. <laughs> they were, so they were, so the seventh, so the troops in, that uh, were involved in the Korean War were untrained troops. They were immediately overrun. That's why we lost the, the war in Korea initially until we got the Marines in there and uh, uh, trained more combat-ready uh, troops, stabilized the front lines, and we never did occupy, you know, all of Korea. You know, we just we just took over half of it. MacArthur had had the right idea, but he and he knew that uh, that the Russians had to have their share of Korea too. So he let them have North Korea. And we took over to South Korea and divided the country and it's still there. 
Yeah, still divided. North Koreans are indoctrinated in communism, and we indoctrinated South Korean democracy, and I guess never the twain shall meet. You mm -hmm. know, it's just uh, we made enemies, uh, Koreans out of enemies of each other. You can imagine Mississippi River dividing East and West America, and we we being democratic and East uh, America being being communist and never getting together. You know, that's uh, it's a strange setup. The world has different ways of figuring out what to do with each other. And that's, ideologies uh, have their way of affecting everybody's life, you know. It's bigger than both of us. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah. I could ask another question. I understand that while you were serving overseas and, and especially in Europe, um, your family, your parents were um, placed in a in an internment camp. What I can't. What's it like, you know, serving your country, knowing that, you know, you're. Well, it was uh, in my case. I joined the regular army for our country, and it was a case of our country right or wrong. It was wrong in the sense that my parents were incarcerated, and uh, in fact, I came to visit them in uniform, and I was eating in a mess hall, eating their food, and I guess everybody thought that that, that was wrong. so. My parents kept me in the room and brought food to me instead of going to the mess hall. I knew that, uh, that our country, that our military, the people guarding my parents were of the same uniform I did. And it was uh, very incongruous to that extent that uh, here we were in camp in uniform with our parents incarcerated and here we are expect to fight for our country. So we had to prove ourselves. You know, we had to show who our loyalty was, even though our parents were denied that right, you know, because they were Japanese heritage, uh, that was their loyalty. In fact, I remember my father saying, Japan's gonna win. Japan's going to win the war. I said, I looked at her. <laughs> I'm in uniform for fighting for our country, and, you, and uh, I, I didn't say that to him, but uh, it kind of wondered how come he thinks that. And of course, after the war, he, he became real American in a sense that he went to Japan and uh, gave everything he owned practically to all of his brothers and sisters that were having a hardship getting along under the occupation. He gave all of his clothes to his brothers and sisters, and he could have reclaimed his territory, but he gave it to his, uh, his, uh, one, of his one of his younger brothers, and he, one of his younger brothers gave it to his, his kids. And he established uh, schools and churches for the community, and wow. he did everything that uh, he thought he should be doing because he was on the winning side. You might say, you know, even though he he didn't think that we were gonna we were gonna win. It was a strange situation, and uh, you might say I was caught between a rock and a hard place. But uh, my my feeling, and I was in the Army for four or five, six years by that time, and I was going to stay in and make it a career. I knew my, which side I was on, and uh, I couldn't tell that my father was wrong, but he was doing what he thought was right. You know, he and my mother both became a very ardent supporter of the community, which where my father was, was born and raised, and uh, 
did everything they could, and they even built a memorial for them, you know, in the really? community. Yeah. Uh, named a school after them, and I have no idea what's going on there now. It'd be interesting to go there to find out. What, what, what was your father's name? Uh, well, Kanadani. Uh, it's spelled Kanadani, but Kanatani. And his brother came with a Kanatani, same name. So the spelling of the word Kanatani can also be pronounced Kanaya. So my father took the name Kanaya instead of uh, his brother, younger brother, who's, who kept the Kanatani. So they're both <laughs> brothers, but the two different last names. <laughs> they got confused because they were in the same community. So my brother, my father's younger brother, came over and started a family and became farmers, uh, just like my father. But uh, in order to get get from being too confused, my, my father kept the name Kanaya, was spelled the same. It's spelled the same in, in uh, Japanese characters, but it pronounced, could be pronounced differently. So I'm glad he changed Kanaya instead of Kanatani. Kanatani is another, Another syllable there, you know. (laughs) Is there any, I don't want to take too much of your time. um, Is there anything else you'd like to, any experiences you'd like to to talk about or anything? I don't know. Well, when I was a POW, I knew that a lot of the guys uh, just gave up. They just gave up. but those of us that uh, knew that we were winning kept our hopes up, even though we were. In fact, I was with. I just got my commission, so I was with all all the American Army officers, and you think that they'd be pretty pretty honest with each other, but they were stealing with each other from each other, especially when you're hungry. You're going to steal food. Wherever you can, you're going to try to finagle a life out of somebody uh, and hoping that you can continue on. So we found that some of the officers were stealing food from each other. And uh, at that time, our senior officer said they were going to bring charges against you uh, when we were liberated, but I don't think they ever did because once they were liberated, we were so happy to be to be free that we forgot forgot all about the past mistakes that were made. It was uh, that, that experience of losing your freedom is like putting in, putting being put into jail for fighting for a country. You know, it's a, it's a strange feeling. Losing your freedom is something that most of us have never experienced before. You lose your freedom to move about and to be able to eat what you want to eat anytime you want to eat is something that uh, you can never forget that. Freedom is uh, so free that we expect it, you know. Once you lose it, once you lose it for fighting for a country, once you lose freedom for doing something against our government, that would be different, you know. You deserve to be incarcerated. But uh, being in prison for fighting for a country is something that's hard to hard to stomach, you know. Well, is there anything else you'd like to... I don't know. Anything, anything question in your mind about survival or... I think survival is foremost in your mind once you lose it, lose freedom. You want to live. But once your body gets to the point where you lose all hope, you know, you lose all strength and uh, will to live, and they give up. I imagine, did you see it happen often with other prisoners and... Not too many, not among the officers. Uh, 
most of the officers are imbued with loyalty and uh, hope that uh, it's hard to break down. I don't know about the enlisted. Uh, enlisted men were put to work, so they got food, and uh, they they were able to keep keep going. Now I don't know of too many people who gave up. Most of us uh, knew we were winning. We knew our side was winning, so we uh, we had the hope of eventually getting out from under what we were experiencing. It uh, didn't take much imagination to realize that, you know, that we were winning. But the Germans kept fighting, you know. They, they kept... Uh, Hitler had a stranglehold on them, and they, they, had, they were able to continue... Uh, even when uh, it was obvious that they were losing. You see our planes flying over, dropping bombs on the city. Can you imagine planes coming over this area, dropping bombs on us? And, you, know, you know, damn well we're losing if we couldn't keep them from doing it. But they kept fighting. And the Russians uh, were moving. The Germans were more afraid of the Russians than they were of us. So those who were fighting on the Russian front, once they, were, they knew they were losing, they would switch over to our side, fight against us and be captured by our side rather than by the Russians. Because the say Russians captured them, but they didn't last very long, you know, because they were, they kept uh, them starved. There were a lot of Germans who were fighting on the Russian side. And uh, that, that's what the Germans were after. They wanted their own people to, uh, that were fighting for the Russians to be captured so they'd be treated uh, harshly. You know? It's amazing how war could affect people, you know, loyalty. Uh, the Russians were barbaric. They were... They, in prison camp, they were dying at the rate of, oh, maybe every day, 30, 40, 50, 100 Russians would, would, find, would be dead, you know, because of lack of food. And two Russians would, would get together and keep a dead Russian in between them so they can get their rations. You know, they'd get three rations for two uh, until the body begins to smell so bad that they'd have to, you know, give up uh, that dead body. So that's how they lived. You know, very barbaric and uh, basic. They're basic in their livelihood, yet they were humans, you know, they were humans. We would trade, uh, they would, they would uh, give us trinkets that they kept for their for their own survival, they would trade for bread. You know. It was uh, in war. Survival is one of the most important things. Otherwise, you wouldn't be any good to your side. You have to. You have to live to be able to continue fighting. And if you couldn't, if you couldn't eat, you know, you couldn't live. <laughs> so food was no wonder our our side. Uh, Quartermaster was uh, the most important job was to provide food for our troops. If we didn't have food, you know, we couldn't we couldn't move. Food and fuel. Uh, Can't imagine what that must have been like. Yeah, you have to experience it to uh, to go through what the prisoners did. Yeah. When you're on. Uh, when you're fighting on the right side, you knew you're going to win. The Germans knew they were losing, yet they would fight. You know, they they would fight to the last uh, last breath, and uh, that's that takes uh, discipline. And they're hardcore 
the SS troops were very well disciplined to the point where they would fight to the death, you know. But the, the average German who were conscripted from uh, from the villages uh, were old and feeble and all they carried was a rifle and probably didn't know how to use it to begin with. Uh, so they were the conscripts that home guard that we encountered as a prisoner, we were guarded by them for the most part. I recall on the march in the middle of the winter, snow on the road and the side of the road, and the guards were on each side of us. We were in the middle of the road and the guards were in the ditch trying to keep up with us. You know, I felt sorry for them, the old men and trying to, <laughs> trying to do their duty. But uh, when it came time to eat, they they were first in line, and uh, they got the the best part of the big pot of soup that was made for us. You know, we had a great big kettle about this uh, this table about that deep, and it was I guess it was horse meat that was, it was horse meat and vegetables that were potatoes and cabbage and beets and carrots. We'd have an advanced party of enlisted men that would go ahead and set up uh, the cooking facilities for the rest of us that were marching. The German guards would get to the bottom of the vat. They would get their container full of food. And we would, if you were on the tail end, you got nothing but warm Warm water, warm colored water. Yeah. But you would switch. This, we were through the last platoon. Next day we would be the first platoon. We would, so we would get the we would get the best food. But I don't recall ever having any anything real good to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, it was always a tasteless uh, warm soup, potatoes and beets and carrots and whatever else they could find along the way. Most of the soldiers, most of the regular army Germans were conscripts and, um, you know, older men. And did you, did you interact or do you see many SS officers around or were they? No, most of our guards were, were old people. And uh, at one point, all the guards took off because the Germans, because the Russians were right behind us. And for a whole half a day there, we were without any guards and we were waiting, we were, we were just waiting for the Russians to recapture us. But then in the meantime, a young Latvian SS troops came and took over guards. And, and then as soon as uh, the Germans, uh, Regular guards took over. The Russians kept us moving just far enough ahead of the advancing Russians. And we were moving north, northwest, and Russians were coming straight, and sometimes they were below us to the south of us. You know? We were just staying ahead of the advanced Russians. And finally we got to a place called Posen, and we finally caught a train and moved us into western central Russia where we were still about 100 miles from western front and eastern front. We were still in the middle there, free of uh, any activity. So we were pretty, pretty safe. But we kept pretty close to the war. We were pretty, kept pretty close to what was going on around us, so we knew we were winning. Germans were getting kind of nervous, you know, and uh, you could see that that they were, uh, they had a job to do. They had to protect us, you know, and they didn't want any more 
prisoners killed and necessary, so they, they kept us protected yeah. the best they knew how under the circumstances. Yeah, it was... Uh, mm. We could have been killed by our own side, you know, by planes are bombing and strafing us, and uh, they saw the troop movements while they, they came in and zoomed in. And we finally spelled out USA with body, you know, making USA at the head of the column. And so they, uh, then they would wave their wings and then take off. But that was the symbol, that was a signal that, uh, you know, that we were, <laughs> we were US, U.S. troops. <laughs> wow. You know, was, when, you, when you string along about 12 or 1,300 prisoners, it takes a long column, you know, four abreast and maybe three or 400 yards long. And uh, uh, that was, it looked like the Germans were evacuating army and so our planes would strafe us you know. yeah yeah uh, it was you, you can't blame them yeah. yeah i really hope you enjoyed this conversation with colonel retired kanaya in case you're interested in learning more about his experiences jimmy was featured in a series called world war ii in hd I think he was one of six service members who was profiled there, and you can see footage of him in his home. And for more details on this interview and some pictures, you can go to our website at www.storiesfromeveryday.com. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention the Nisei veterans. For those of you who are interested in learning more about the 442nd or the experiences of uh, Japanese Americans uh, serving our country, the Nisei veterans are a wonderful organization located in Seattle, They were founded by members of the 442nd after World War II, and they've been an integral part of their community ever since. The organization works hard to preserve the history of those who've served their country and those who've served in the Japanese internment camps. They have a wonderful museum in their veterans hall with artifacts from service members, as well as artifacts from the internment camps. They've taken the time to publish several books, some written exclusively for children, and created several videos about their members. Um, This organization helped me arrange this interview with Jimmy, and I'm forever grateful to them. Thanks for listening.